This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. It's time to announce this year's Nobel Prize in Physics. I am Jordan Hansen, Secretary General of the Academy, and with me on the podium is the Chair of the Nobel Committee for Physics, Professor Anne Villiers, and Professor Olga Botner, member of the Nobel Committee. And I'm Steve Mursky, and this is the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk for October 6th, 2015. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has decided to award the 2015 Nobel Prize in Physics to Takaaki Kajita and Arthur B. MacDonald for the discovery of neutrino oscillations which shows that neutrinos have mass. Back in 2010, Arizona State University physicist Lawrence Krauss wrote a column for a Scientific American called Why I Love Neutrinos. We happened to be at the same event that summer, so I spoke to him for a few minutes about neutrinos. We'll hear that conversation and then return to this morning's Nobel Prize announcement and press conference. The most interesting particles in nature, they're everything you'd want. They, they're elusive and mysterious. We don't know much about them. And 6,000 billion of them are going through your body every second. I mean, you know, how much more exciting can that be? Can you give us the, the real quick explanation of what neutrinos are for people who don't know? Absolutely. Neutrinos are uh, elementary particles that are the lightest elementary particles we know of. Uh, they, are, in fact, were invented or discovered because we, that we, when particles like neutrons decay, there was missing energy. And these particles were proposed that the energy had to go somewhere. And, when, in fact, the name comes from the fact that they had to be neutral because we couldn't see them in detectors, but they had to be light. So Enrico Fermi called them a little neutron. In Italian, is little is neutrino. So they were baby neutrons, which are the only other neutral particles at the time that were known. But it turns out that they are unique in nature in only interacting via a, a single force in nature called the weak force. And the weak force is weak. So... A neutrino, like the neutrinos coming through your body from the sun, can go through, on average, 10,000 light years of lead before interacting once. Now, you, let's, let's just try to bring that down to Earth to people. If you had a block of lead mm -hmm. the size of the entire Earth and you went across the diameter, that would only be about 8,000 miles, and you're yeah. talking about 10,000 light, light years, years, which is, you know, somebody else can do the math. But It's, it's a third it's, of the way to the center of the Milky Way galaxy. So that's it's, a lot of Earths lined up in a row. Uh, yeah, a heck of a lot of Earths lined up in a row. There's, that's a, a distance that encompasses something like almost 100 billion stars. I mean, it's amazing. And, and neutrinos go right through it without even knowing it was there. So in the column... And what's amazing, by the way, and what is equally amazing, and one of the reasons I love it so much, is you might think that given that they don't interact at all like this, how do we know they exist? How do, well, maybe they're just inventions of the, our human imagination. We use the laws of probability, which I also love. All those neutrinos are going through the Earth on average without, without knowing it was there, but, but the laws of probability tell us that every now and then one should interact. So if we build a big enough detector and we're patient enough, every now and then we can catch that errant neutrino and interact it. And in fact, that's what Ray Davis, in a very courageous experiment, 
did with a, with a hundred thousand gallons of cleaning fluid in a deep mine in South Dakota for years. It's amazing the experiment got built, and he later won the Nobel Prize for discovering neutrino. Because and this is the neat thing in that experiment. So, what he built a, a, a tank of a hundred thousand gallons of cleaning fluid, and you could calculate that if these neutrinos were coming from the sun, on average of the billions and billions of neutrinos that went through the Earth, one each day would hit an atom of chlorine and turn it the nucleus of that atom into the nucleus of an atom of argon. So all you had to do was find a single atom of argon and 100,000 gallons of cleaning fluid. Now, when I tell that to an audience, people titter all the time because no one would believe it was possible. It, science fiction writers wouldn't have the guts to talk about it, but you could really do it, and that's what's amazing. That, that nevertheless, just amazes me that we can detect neutrinos. And in the, uh, in the column you wrote in the June issue of Scientific American, you talk about some of the ideas that you had a long time ago related to neutrino detection. Why don't you tell us about that and, and what, what eventually happened? Yeah, no, it's really, and that, uh, that's amazing because you, can, you, you think of things, and, and I'm a theoretical physicist, so I get paid to imagine a lot, and there are times when I, I, I think of things that should be possible, but I, it's never clear we'll ever really know about it. And, and so, in fact, 25 or 30 years ago, I thought of two processes that would produce neutrinos that were fascinating to me. One, because I got to learn about it. One is the fact that the Earth is actually a source, not of neutrinos, but anti-neutrinos. The radioactivity in the Earth produces anti-neutrinos, which are constantly streaming up. And I actually kind of realized that if we could measure those anti-neutrinos, we could measure the radioactivity in the Earth. One of the things that's kind of fascinating is we don't know how much radioactivity there is in the Earth. We, in principle, we don't even have proof that the Earth isn't heating up instead of cooling down. Because if there was enough radioactivity, it could heat up the Earth instead of letting the Earth cool down. By measuring those anti-neutrinos, you could know that. But it was so clear that it was such a difficult experiment that, that while I proposed a lot of possibilities, I remember at the time I lectured on this subject, I remember to geophysicists, and a lot of them said, look, when I was going to school, people didn't even believe neutrinos existed, and now you want me to use them to, to, to look for the Earth? I mean, people scoffed at it, it was, you know, or at least uh, were amused, but didn't take it seriously, I think. And then, there, then I also thought about the fact that over the history of the life of the universe, neutrinos are not just produced by the sun, but when stars explode this, in, in a supernova, the most brilliant fireworks in the universe... As brilliant as those fireworks are, less than 1% of the energy of the star is coming out in light. 99% is coming out in neutrinos. And so neutrinos are being, and when every time a star explodes, there's an incredible burst of neutrinos. We hope to look for that. In fact, we discovered a neutrino burst in 1987 from a star that exploded 150,000 light years away. But if you think about it, all of the stars that have exploded over cosmic history have produced a, a neutrino background that's going throughout the universe. And we, we estimated what it might be at a time, by the way, before 1987, before we'd ever seen a star explode and produce neutrinos. So no one really knew if it happened. So it was theoretical speculation in the extreme. We imagined stars produced neutrinos. We imagined the rate at which stars were, were exploding. And we proposed a rate to detect them. Well, this, the... I was going to say the short version, but this wasn't that short because I've talked for a while, is that 30 years later, there are now experiments that have now detected the anti-neutrinos from the Earth, uh, finally, that I never would have thought were possible. And an experiment is on the verge of having the sensitivity to detect those, that neutrino background from the universe. And at, each time we open up a new window on the universe, we learn something. We're often surprised. And so neutrinos are becoming not just elusive particles, but incredible new windows on processes that happen in the cores of stars and even in the core of our very Earth. Back to Stockholm from early this morning, what follows is an edited version of the event. 
And now, the chair of the Nobel Committee, Professor Lullier, will give us a brief introduction. Anne, please. At this moment, in this room, there are more than a billion neutrinos which travel almost at the speed of light. These elementary particles are the second most abundant in the universe, next to the photons, which are the particles of light. They are created in nuclear reactions, for example, in, in the sun, in stars, or in nuclear power points. They interact very little with the environment. For example, they can go through Earth without being stopped. There are three kinds of neutrinos, electron neutrinos, muon neutrinos, and tau neutrinos. This year's prize is awarded to the experiment discovery that neutrinos can change identity. For example, an, a muon neutrino can become a tau neutrino, and vice versa. They oscillate. The observations were made by two research groups, one at the Super Kamiokande detector in Japan, and the other at Subdury Neutrino Observatory in Canada. The discovery implies that neutrinos, which were believed to be massless, do have a mass, even if very little. And since there are so many of them, it changes our view of the universe. Thank you, Anne. Now, Professor Olga Botner will give us some insights into the science behind the prize. Olga, please. I'll be happy to. Neutrinos are a puzzle. And this year's Nobel Prize in Physics honors a fundamental step towards unveiling the nature of the neutrino. As we just heard, neutrinos are very common fundamental particles. Many are created in the solar core. Others are created when cosmic rays collide with atoms in the atmosphere. Others still are created by decays of radioactive elements in the Earth's crust or in our nuclear reactors. Every second, billions of neutrinos pass through our bodies, unfelt and unseen. Neutrinos are nature's most elusive particles. They hardly ever interact. But sometimes a neutrino will strike an atom. And when it does, charged particles are produced and those we can detect. And this is how we know that there are three kinds of neutrinos. We call them flavors, neutrino flavors. We have electron neutrinos. Those, when they interact, always produce the electrons. But we also have muon neutrinos and tau neutrinos, which, upon interaction, produce muons and tauons. And muons and tauons are heavier relative of the electrons. They have properties just like the electrons. They're just heavier. And apart from that, this is about all we know about neutrinos. And for more than half a century, we used to think that neutrinos are massless. A Discovery, the discovery of neutrino oscillations at the turn of the millennium upset our notions. This discovery comes in two parts. The first part has to do with the neutrinos from the atmosphere, the atmospheric neutrinos, and the second part with solar neutrinos. And I'll start with the atmospheric neutrinos. 
particle showers in the atmosphere produce neutrinos. They produce electron neutrinos and muon neutrinos. Kaita-san headed a group of researchers using the Super Kamiokande detector deep underground in a zinc mine about 250 kilometers northwest of Tokyo in a study of the atmospheric neutrino flux. They wanted to know how the atmospheric neutrino flux varied as a function of energy and arrival direction. Now, neutrinos arrived at Supokamyokande from all directions. They arrive from above, but they also arrive from below. They traverse the entire Earth without interacting. We have heard that neutrinos were very elusive. They hardly ever interact. So it's not so surprising that they can traverse the whole Earth and reach Supokamyokande from below. Whereas the electron neutrino count in Supokamyokande seemed okay, the researchers discovered that muon neutrinos seemed to disappear while traveling to the detector. A huge tank filled with 50,000 tons of ultra-pure water, and the more so, the farther they traveled. The volume of this tank is monitored by about 11,000 optical sensors. And these sensors can detect not the neutrinos themselves, which are invisible, but when they rarely interact with an atom, producing charged particles, electrons and muons. And when these charged particles move through the water, they produce light images, rings. And so electron and muon neutrinos can be distinguished by means of these rings. Tau neutrinos are generally not detected by Supokamukande. Meanwhile, on the other side of, of the Earth, in the Ontario province in Canada, there was a detector which was capable of counting all the neutrino flavors. The Sudbury Neutrino Observatory detector was used by a group of scientists headed by Arthur B. MacDonald in a study of solar neutrinos. The Sudbury Neutrino Observatory detector, a sphere 12 meters in diameter, filled with ultra-pure heavy water, 1,000 tons of it. Now, heavy water is just like regular water, except that in each H2O molecule, the hydrogen atom is exchanged for a heavier isotope of hydrogen, deuterium. So whereas hydrogen in its nucleus contains just one proton, deuterium contains a proton and a neutron. And this makes all the difference. When neutrinos collide with deuterium, two reactions are possible. Either the deuterium nucleus is dissociated, or the neutrino is absorbed by the neutron and an electron is produced. So these two reactions can be distinguished. The sun produces only electron neutrinos. So knowing that, we expect that the count of both the left and the right-hand side reaction should be equal. However, SNO observed that whereas the total neutrino count was as expected, the electron neutrinos seemed to disappear. So we have two observations. And it turns out that these two observations together pick out one single explanation. The neutrinos change flavor while traveling through space.
And this means that if we try to determine neutrino flavor as a function of distance or as a function of time, we'll find that this flavor changes. And we, we are talking in terms of neutrino flavor oscillations. Neutrino flavor oscillations is an effect which, although surprising, is explained by quantum theory. In quantum theory, particles moving through space are described by waves. These waves overlap, they interfere, and this is what we interpret as neutrino oscillations. Quantum theory also tells us that this neutrino metamorphosis is only possible if neutrinos are not massless, as opposed to what we used to believe. Neutrinos must have non-zero mass. The discovery that neutrinos has, have mass has profound consequences, not only for particle physics, pointing at physics beyond the standard model, but also for astrophysics and for cosmology. The discovery of neutrino oscillations has opened a new, exciting and challenging field of physics. And all of the world, scientists are picking up this challenge to unveil the true nature of the neutrino. Thank you. We may now have Professor MacDonald with us on the phone. And remember, it's around 4 o'clock or so in the morning in Canada. Hello, Professor MacDonald. Uh, good morning again. I'm the guy who woke you up uh, 45 minutes ago. Uh, as it turns out, I did not mind. <laughs> <laughs> right now, I'm sitting in the beautiful session hall of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences here in Stockholm, and we are in the midst of the press conference with uh, many interested journalists from Sweden and abroad. And who would like to start? Thomas von Heinen. Thank you. <clears throat> Good morning, Professor. This is Swedish Television, von Heinen speaking. Congratulations. Thank you so much on behalf of myself and also my many collaborators on our experiment. Neutrinos are, are very elusive. Uh, so you've been chasing something extremely elusive. Uh, was there at any time a moment when you thought, okay, we are really on to something here? Yes, there certainly was a eureka moment in this experiment when uh, we were able to see uh, that uh, neutrinos appeared to change from uh, one type to the other in traveling from the sun to the earth. Uh, fortunately, with the availability of heavy water, it, was, it became clear, uh, and uh, our statistical accuracy became greater, and uh, we were able to be certain that this was uh, able to be proven uh, with uh, great accuracy. So, yes, there was that eureka moment. Okay, um, I wonder, uh, you discovered that uh, the neutrino has mass, and what is the biggest impact that this discovery has? W what will it change? Well, neutrinos uh, are among the fundamental particles that we do not know how to subdivide any further, and uh, therefore their position within uh, the uh, models of physics at the most fundamental level uh, is very important. Uh, when you uh, do not know uh, even whether they have mass, it's uh, otherwise difficult to understand how to 
incorporate them into those uh, theories that give us a more complete understanding of uh, the world of physics at a most fundamental level. Uh, discovering this uh, property uh, therefore helps us tremendously in that regard. They also have uh, significant implications in how the universe has evolved and uh, knowing whether or not they are massive, whether they change their type, uh, also help in attempting to unravel uh, those mysteries as well. What, what use, do you know any practical use? Um, well, uh, I guess one could cite the fact that uh, in addition to observing uh, neutrinos uh, as having changed their type, we in particular were observing neutrinos from the core of the sun. And in the process of making our measurements, we were able to verify the uh, uh, understanding of how the processes in the core of the sun, things that have been calculated in detail by people like John McCall, uh, that they were very accurate. But those processes are similar to the processes that these days people are attempting to produce here on Earth uh, in the process of developing fusion power. So uh, in our case, it's held in place by gravity rather than magnetic fields, but knowing that we have a, a, a very strong indication that we understand what's happening uh, at a large degree of accuracy in the sun helps us in terms of understanding the physics leads to uh, the same type of fusion process in fusion power. Hello, I'm Maria Gunter from Dagens Nyheter. I would like to know what more questions about the neutrino you still would like to get answered to. Well, there are a number of uh, experiments that are uh, ongoing as a result of these uh, initial measurements by Emilio Candy and Snow. In particular, we would like to know what the absolute mass of the neutrino is. We know differences in mass between the three neutrino types do not know uh, the mass of the lightest of them that sets the full scale. But there are experiments uh, in which one looks for a rare radioactivity called neutrinoless bubble decay that enables one, uh, if it is observed, to uh, be able to make such a measurement as well as other direct measurements. The fortunate thing is that uh, the development of these uh, underground laboratories that really create uh, in the center of our detectors, the lowest radioactivity point that has ever been created, we believe, uh, is also uh, a location where, by eliminating other forms of interfering radioactivity, we are able to make uh, very uh, uh, significant measurements of quantities like neutrinoless double beta decay. Uh, other uh, experiments are looking at uh, whether there are other neutrino-types beyond the three that uh, uh, have been uh, clearly observed and are observed to have finite mass. Uh, and uh, there are, are, is a whole program of neutrino measurements internationally in order to determine their properties and fit them within the fundamental laws. Uh, we, of course, are very satisfied that uh, we have been able to add to the world's knowledge of uh, physics at a very fundamental level of course, this recognition is something that is uh, a tremendous accolade for our uh, group. Thank you very much. 
again, Professor MacDonald. And let's move on to uh, questions to our experts on the panel. Thank you very much, Lucian from People's Daily. I want to ask, um, uh, neutrinos has mass, have mass, so I'd, I want to know how do you measure the mass and how much is it? Thank you. Olga. So what we know from the study of neutrino oscillations is that neutrinos have mass, or at least one of the three neutrino flavors does have mass. It's very hard to measure the mass itself, and it's one of these outstanding challenges that Professor MacDonald has just been describing. We have been trying to measure neutrino mass for more than 70 years, but the only thing we know is an upper limit on the masses, and the best upper limit comes from cosmology. It's of the order of 0.2 electron volts, which is more than a million times lighter than the electron. So that's the only thing I can tell you. The neutrino has a mass, and it's more than a million times lighter than the electron. But exactly how much the mass is, is an outstanding challenge of the field. Following the announcement, Swedish journalist Joanna Rose spoke with Olga Botner. Olga Botner, you are a member of the Nobel Committee for Physics, and this year's prize is about neutrinos. What is the prize for, exactly? This year, the prize honors a fundamental discovery in physics. And uh, since neutrinos are very common in our surroundings, and they are very common particles in the universe, the discovery that neutrinos are actually not massless makes a difference. It makes a difference theoretically, but it also makes the difference to how our sun functions. If it wouldn't be for neutrinos, the sun would not be shining anymore. If it wouldn't be for neutrinos, supernovas would not be exploding the way they explode. The elements that we are all made of would not exist. So neutrinos are very important, but this is fundamental physics. What are neutrinos then? <laughs> well, I wish we knew what neutrinos are. Neutrinos are among these few fundamental particles which make up matter. And we know them from radioactive decays. But what they really are, no one knows. No one has ever seen a neutrino. Neutrinos have no electric charge, and we can only detect particles which carry electric charge. And so we can only discover neutrinos when they interact with something and produce charged particles. And this is how we know there are three kinds of neutrinos, but no one has ever seen the neutrino itself. And the price is actually for a discovery of neutrinos oscillations, that neutrinos change identities also. Yes. Uh, what does it mean? Well, it means that neutrinos... It's very hard to say that the neutrino changes identity because it makes you think of the fact that, you know, you have a neutrino sitting on the table in front of you and all of a sudden it becomes something else. So neutrinos do not change identity like that. They change identity while they move through space. When they do that, you can produce one kind of neutrino, but then if you try to detect it hundreds, hundreds of kilometers further away, you discover that what you catch is not the same kind of neutrino, but a different kind of neutrino. So something has happened on the way from the source 
to the detector. And this is what we call neutrino oscillations. And this has to do with quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics, I can see that, you know, as soon as you say quantum mechanics, people get totally, you know, this is not for me, I don't want, you know, I'm not going to understand it. But in reality, it's not that difficult. Quantum mechanics describes particles moving through space like waves. So if you think of waves in a pond, like someone throwing two stones in a pond, both stones will create waves and these waves will interfere. And likewise in space, neutrinos moving in space are described by waves. These waves interfere, they overlap, and this is what we discover in the form of oscillations. So it's an it's an interpretation of a quantum mechanical phenomenon. And the two laureates this year, uh, they made big experiments and they led big uh, collaborations. How come these two uh, scientists were awarded this prize? So this so it is true that these two scientists are part of big collaborations. We have the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory collaboration, uh, headed by Art MacDonald since 1990. Art was one of the 16 people who proposed Sudbury Neutrino Observatory back in 1984. So he has really been in the journey from the very beginning. He has made a proposal, he has built the observatory, he has been the organizational and intellectual leader of this venture. On the other side, we have this, the Super Kamiokande Observatory in a mine in Japan. Uh, Super Kamiokande works somewhat differently. Super Kamiokande is a second generation observatory following the Kamiokande. Uh, Takaki Kaita worked on Kamiokande while a PhD student, and he worked with atmospheric neutrinos. When moving to Super Kamiokande, he led one of the three experimental groups trying to make sense of the data they were getting. So he was leading the uh, atmospheric neutrino group and trying to investigate the properties of the neutrinos. So he was the intellectual leader of this effort. And both made discoveries around the turn of this millennium. Both uh, discoveries around the turn of this millennium. And you mentioned that neutrinos still are a big puzzle. Yes. Uh, so what's going on since then? So since, so since then, we've discovered that neutrinos are even more of a challenge than we thought they were. Because, okay, if neutrinos are massless, we do not understand it, but at least the mass identical to zero is one of the fundamental constants of the universe and just describes the universe we live in. Now we know that neutrino mass is not zero. So now the question becomes, why is it not zero and why is it so small? So if we, if we physicists discover something which is very small but actually not equal to zero, we get very excited because there must be something which makes this quantity small but not zero. So there is a lot of experimental activity one, trying to determine exactly what the mass is. We don't know what the mass is. We only know an upper limit. We want to know why the mass is so small. And of course, theorists have lots of proposals. We want to know why neutrinos only appear in a left-handed variety and not in a right-handed variety. 
they may be a new type of particle, which is called the Majorana particle. So people are trying to figure out that. And so, you know, in the end, this discovery of neutrino oscillations has created a wide open field. So instead of just trying to determine what the neutrino mass is, we are now trying to determine the properties of the neutrino, and this may teach us a whole lot of new things about the universe. And uh, you yourself uh, are a spokesperson for the big experiment on the South Pole. Can you tell us about neutrinos? Can yes. you tell us something I always about love that? to tell about neutrinos at the South Pole. Yeah, I'm, I'm the spokesperson of the International Ice Cube Collaboration. So we are about 300 scientists working with a detector buried deep underground be below the surface of Antarctica at the South Pole. There is a detector in the glacier detecting not atmospheric and not solar neutrinos, but we hope to see neutrinos coming from the outer space. We do detect atmospheric neutrinos, but to us, this is not a signal, it's a calibration source. So since we, so since that theory is describing how the atmosphere functions, we use the atmospheric neutrinos to calibrate our detector. However, a few years ago in 2013, we discovered the flux from the outer space. Neutrinos coming not from our galaxy, but somewhere from the outside of our galaxy. And this is the first, and for this discovery, IceCube was named the breakthrough of the year 2013. And now we are continuing on this path and try to learn more about these cosmic neutrinos, which sources produce them, and how they get these enormous energies, which are millions of times larger than what the sun is capable of doing, and what we can do with our man-made terrestrial accelerators. So once more, there is a lot of experiments about neutrinos still going on. Why is it so important to know just neutrinos, uh, what, what they are? Well, this is an important question. And this year's prize is for fundamental physics, definitely. Now, the use of fundamental physics for society is something which I could discuss at length, but it, it's clear that humans have this urge to learn more about the universe that we live in. And fundamental science is one of the pillars of modern society. So I, I usually say that if we didn't have this urge, we would still be living in caves and we would still be afraid of the lightning. But having learned what we have, we have built a modern society with computers, with GPS, with cures for cancer, all these things are based on discoveries in fundamental science. Einstein didn't develop the special relativity to give us GPS, but we have GPS and it's based on, not on his special, but on his general theory of relativity. <laughs>